Welcome to episode number five of Talking Mopars. On today's show, we talk about the sad news regarding car magazines, a rare Hemi Challenger, and two cars are going to be battling it out for Project Car of the Week. Yes, two cars, but there can only be one PCOTW. So today, we're going to break them down and decide who takes the crown. Then we'll get into listener stories, and finally, we'll close the show discussing the questions, are Mopar prices out of control, and is Russ the new gold? You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. We are pedal to the metal here on Talking Mopars for episode number five. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Ever since I was a kid, I loved car magazines. I had a collection of them, and I still do. I remember being a kid going to the grocery store with my parents and beelining it right for the magazines and sitting there with my dad for the whole grocery shopping trip. We'd be at the magazine rack just looking through, thumbing through magazines. It was my favorite thing. Usually I would leave there with something. I ended up getting subscriptions to a bunch of my favorites, and every month I was always waiting, checking the mailbox to see when that magazine would come in, and then I would disappear into my room and read magazines for hours. <laughs> over and over again, cover to cover. Uh, I loved it. And recently, car enthusiasts like myself were devastated to find out that 10 Publishing, who basically runs many of my personal favorite car magazines, probably yours too, is shutting down operations for 19 of 22 of their titles for 2020. That's a huge loss, folks. There's only going to be three titles that remain, and that's Motor Trend, Four Wheeler, and Hot Rod. This is crazy. So the magazines that are leaving are, the list is huge. Like I said, 19 of 22 titles. That's a big, big percentage of what's going bye-bye including two of my favorite magazines, Mopar Muscle and Muscle Car Review. So this is, in my opinion, it's not good. You know, I understand that there's been a decline in magazine consumption with the digital age, but I just, I personally, I like having something tangible in my hand that I can thumb through. I don't necessarily want to read a quote-unquote magazine on my phone. I don't like doing that. I never have. But I guess I'm going to have to change with the times, too, because our magazines are dying, folks. And we're going to have to change with the times, or we're just going to have to live unhappy. So with this podcast, I hope this is another medium that ends up grabbing the attention of a lot of the car enthusiasts that miss magazines. I hope that conversation can replace some of that. I know it won't be able to replace it all, but I'm hoping that. You know, as we get to talking to people with these special cars, that hopefully that will put life into these stories versus reading them in print. Now, I love car magazines, so I'm not talking down on any car magazines. Um, there's still some really good ones out there, and support them. Get subscriptions. You know, if you want to keep those car magazines alive, especially our favorite Mopar car magazines, get subscriptions, folks, and keep reading. That's the only way they're going to stay afloat. So we have to, as enthusiasts, we have to support them. So 
If there's magazines out there that you're like, oh, gosh, I don't want that one to go away, then get out there and subscribe today. That's that's my advice. And, you know, embrace the digital age, too. You know, hopefully they keep some of the titles that they're canceling in print. Hopefully they bring them over to digital and hopefully a lot of those people get to retain their jobs. Uh, there's a lot of journalists out there that are freaking out right now, and I, I totally get it. If I was them, I would really embrace the digital age, and, you know, it sucks. God, I always wanted, when I was a kid, I always wanted my car in a magazine. I always thought that would be cool, you know, but I've never had a car cool enough or worthy enough to make it into a magazine, and by the time I have a vehicle that's even worthy enough, there may not even be magazines. The big thing that I see with, like, social media is that with Facebook and Instagram, it's like a car show every day. You know, you're seeing magazine quality cars getting posted and shared all over the internet. So I kind of see where things are going and I, I'll i embrace it, although I'm not 100% happy about it. Because like I said, I love to thumb through magazines. I love just sitting there and just getting lost in a magazine. I'm a dork, but hey, I know there's a lot of dorks out there just like me that love car magazines and we're really really sad by this news but that's okay you know we're gonna we're gonna change with the times and we just have to get used to the digital age folks it's not going anywhere and it's probably only going to get worse i to be honest i just don't see things surviving the way they are right now i don't think social media is going to survive in its current state for very long pretty soon you're going to be seeing the facebooks and the instagrams change I don't know what they're going to change into, but the way we know them right now, it's not going to last. So enjoy it while it's here. Gosh, that kind of went down a depressing road. But fear not, because automotive content is alive and well, and it always will be. It's just a matter of what form it will take. Hopefully podcasts. So stick with me, folks, and just consider this an audio magazine. I recently ran across a car while Mopar hunting that I thought was worthy enough to spend a few minutes talking about it. I posted it on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page. It's a 1970 Hemi Challenger RT that is apparently one of 137 R-code four-speed cars ever made. It's got 13,000 original miles for $160,000 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So let me read the ad to you and then I'll just describe the car. Here's the ad. This is the original Hellcat Challenger. This is a real-deal 1970 Hemi Challenger RT four-speed car with 13,000 original miles on it. There were only 137 built with a four-speed almost 50 years ago. I'd be willing to bet that less than 65 of the four-speed examples still survive today in any sort of condition. This awesome Hemi Challenger has never been seen by the Mopar crowds as it has never been to any shows. It is by no means a perfect car, but it has always been a rust-free car and it looks and drives fantastic. Although I would prefer to sell this car outright, I would consider partial trades on Mopar Muscle Cars only. I've chosen not to describe any details about the car in this post, so that only the most interested buyers would take their time to inquire on this car. So that's the ad. If you're interested in seeing more, go to the Mopar Hunter page and find it. It's not hard to find. It's probably got the most (laughs) likes on it as of recently within this past week. Cars like this generate a lot of attention, so it doesn't surprise me. 
when I first saw the car, I thought, wow, that's really beautiful. It's got that day two look. So this is what the car looks like for those of you that haven't seen it yet. It's a white 1970 Hemi Challenger RT. It's got the shaker hood on it. It's got that mid-body stripe going down the side of the car. And the interesting thing to me about this particular body stripe is it's kind of a light blue. At least that's the way it appears in pictures. And I've never seen a light blue one in person. And just on the few pictures that I checked out online, I wasn't able to find one. So I'm not sure. I haven't done any research on this, but I think that's a rare color. So take that for what you will. But I think this car is a lot rarer than even just being a Hemi car. I think this combination of colors may be one of one. Now, I don't know, but if only 137 R-code Hemi four-speed cars were made, Challenger RTs, how many were made white with blue interior and a light blue mid-body stripe? I'm willing to bet not very many. This could be the only one. This car has a really cool day two look with the polished slots on it. And, of course, you can't go wrong with a direct connection front plate. And that's what this car has. So, bonus points for that because I like that kind of stuff. The car presents very well. And going back to the ad, he says it's by no means a perfect car, but it has always been rust-free and runs and drives. I'd like to know what he means by not a perfect car. Is he being nitpicky? Does he know that people are going to come to this car and be nitpicky? I'm not sure. But for $160,000, I think there's something here. I That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. You're in wing car territory, but you're also talking about a 70 Hemi Challenger RT. One of apparently not very many. With very low original miles, if they are original. Just looking at the car, though, I mean, it looks very, very clean. I like the day two look, too. But that's just me. As far as money goes, he might be in the right ballpark at 160000 So if you got $160,000 laying around, go pick yourself up a 1970 Hemi Challenger four-speed RT car with 13,000 original miles. This week's Project Car of the Week was a little bit of a challenge for me because I couldn't decide between two cars. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read both ads and then kind of talk it out and see which one I believe is worthy of Project Car of the Week. So the first ad is a 1969 Dodge Coronet RT for $26,000. Here's the ad. 1969 Dodge Coronet RT, numbers matching 440 auto, car is close to all original, nice driver, car runs and drives, stops and brakes great. A true collector muscle car, car is complete, no missing parts, needs bodywork. Call anytime for details, $26,000. It also goes on to say that it has new brakes and basically reiterates some of the other details at the bottom. So I'm looking at this car. It's actually outside of a barn. Go figure. Great placement. <laughs> it's a good selling point. He doesn't. Surprisingly, though, I'm super surprised and I wish I could shake this seller's hand because he did not call this car a barn find, even though it's parked right next to a barn. Clearly, it's not a barn find. But we all know, folks, we've talked about it before. 
It's ridiculous when people call cars barn finds, even though they're not barn finds. So props to this seller for not calling this car a barn find, even though it's parked literally right outside of a barn. So that's cool. Looking at the car, it's actually, it presents pretty well for being close to all original, as the seller states. It's green on green. It's got some aftermarket parts on it as far as under hood stuff, but it looks pretty original, you know, with that term being subjective. So let's just consider the term original as being unrestored, you know, with some of the factory parts changed out, you know, tune-up parts, things like that. It's got a, it looks like an interstate battery in it, so obviously that's not original. But for the most part, the car presents very well. The interior, you know, what do you expect from a car that's 50 years old? So it wears all its battle wounds, all its scrapes, scratches, scuffs. It looks cool. I love cars that look like this. I love ratty muscle cars. It's a huge craze. I've always had a thing for ratty muscle cars. Don't get me wrong. I love pristine show-winning examples of these cars, but... When you see a car that looks mostly original driving down the road, at least for me, I find that so cool. The fact that the car is numbers matching and runs, drives, and stops, and is complete, to me is a good selling point. Is $26,000 a good price for it? Usually when I pick these cars for Project Car of the Week, I tend to stand by the fact that I would buy it myself if I had the money. And at $26,000, of course, I would try to get a better deal. But I'm looking at the car, and my question to myself is, would I drive that? And is it worth $26,000? Yes, I would drive it. Is it worth $26,000? If I had a disposable income? Yeah, I'd buy the car and I'd drive the hell out of it. It's got the white bumblebee stripe. It's F8 green, which is one of my favorite colors for Mopars. Um, It's got green interior, which, you know, a lot of people, they don't like that color combination, but I'm a fan of green on green. It's a bucket seat car. It was originally a column shift car. It looks like it's got an aftermarket shifter in it. It's got an aftermarket gauge pod on the lower side of the dash. Uh, The carpet is faded. It's like faded to a mustard yellow. I imagine it was green originally. But it it seems like a pretty solid car. Now, if you're just looking for a car that's cool and old, this would be a car that I would put into that category. For $26,000, a lot of people are going, that's a crazy amount of money. And if you compare it to something else, like I could go get a newer Challenger or a newer Charger that's got a more powerful Hemi and handles better than this car for the same price. But when you're at a stoplight, in your new car, and one of these old cars rolls up next to you, you know you're going to be looking. And the guy driving the old car, he's probably going to look over, give you a nod, but he's going to be thinking to himself, I've got something unique, and I can go to any dealership in America and buy the car that you have, which is not a bad thing. I love the new Mopars. I think they're great. But there's something about an old ratty muscle car that really speaks to me. And I've said, you're going to hear me say that a lot on this podcast, that I've said something before because I keep saying the same things because I stand by what I say. 
And I'm going to stand by this next statement, and that's that I think ratty muscle cars, in my opinion, are cooler than really nice new cars. There's just there's just something about them that really, really gets me. And I would proudly drive a ratty muscle car because I don't care what you think. If I'm on the road and somebody goes, oh, look at that piece of junk, I don't care. Because I know what the car is, and the person calling it a piece of junk probably has no idea. They don't have that same respect that I do for the car. And a 69 Dodge Coronet RT that is mostly original, that car deserves some respect. So, that's my opinion on this car. I would I would definitely buy it. Plus, I mean, who wouldn't buy a ratty old Mopar that still has its Magnum 500 wheels on it? Selling point number nine. I actually don't know how many selling points I have for this particular car, but let's just call that selling point number nine, the Magnum 500s. It looks really cool on those wheels. I love this car. The next car up is a 1971 Dodge Charger Super B. So let's read the ad for this one. 1971 Dodge Charger Super B, V-code, 446-pack, $38,500. Listed for sale is my 1971 Dodge Charger Super B, V-code, 446-pack, one of 69 built with HD automatic transmission. Original numbers matching driveline survivor. 95% original paint. Everything on the car is complete and intact. Body is about 98% rust-free with some minor spots at lower quarters and at the edge of vinyl top. Underbody is spotless and same goes for the rest of the body. Interior is in rough shape but complete and original. Weirdly optioned car with factory bucket seats, column shift, concealed hideaway lights, power steering, front disc brake, and a black vinyl top. A4 Winchester gray in color, 71 only, making this car even more rare. Fender tags in place along with all original stickers and tags. Build sheets are in the car but look to be in too rough of shape for me to try and pull them out. Second owner car out of Indiana. The car does have many new parts and runs and drives very well. I've taken it on a five-hour trip with no issues. You decide if you want to drive this piece of history as is or make it into the $90,000 plus Mopar. You'll be hard-pressed to find another real 446 Charger Super B this solid, let alone numbers matching. I'm asking $38,500. Serious cash buyers only. Do not waste my time. Call anytime. So this car is really cool in the fact that it's a Super B and it's a V-Code 446-pack car. It also retains a lot of its originality and looks to be pretty rot-free. So you're not going to see a bunch of cancer on this car. It does have some minor issues, it looks like, as far as rust. But nothing nothing where you're looking at it like, okay, it's a complete rot box, and I'm going to have to take this thing and have it dipped and all that fun stuff. For me, I look at this car, and I see a car that has potential to be a really cool, mostly original, driver Mopar. Now, this sparks some debate on the Mopar Hunter page where a lot of people were saying that it was overpriced and it was going to cost a lot of money to have it restored and it just wasn't worth 38500 I look at this car and I think to myself, okay, it's a six-pack car, which in itself for 1971 is pretty cool and pretty rare. 
It's a Super B for 71, which is pretty cool and pretty rare. And it's completely numbers matching, you know, according to the seller. That makes it pretty special. And what really sets it apart is that it's A4 Winchester Gray. So that is very cool. I love that color. It's one of my personal favorite Mopar colors. And I think it would be sought after in this particular model, with this particular engine, and with these odd options. I wouldn't be surprised if you broke this car down into the production numbers and found out that this car was one of few, if not one of one. As far as, you know, bucket seats, column shift, 446-pack A4 Winchester Gray, I would like to see production numbers on this particular build. You know, how many cars, does this car have a twin out there? I'd be really curious, because if this is a one of one, you know, it's not a Hemi car. Okay, we get that. It is a 446-pack car that is numbers matching, and it's got documentation that to me, that's worth quite a bit of money, and I would probably buy this car and just preserve it. I've always been more of a proponent for preservation over restoration if the car is worthy enough to just remain in the condition that it's in. And then being the owner, you can watch the value of the car in the current market, and eventually it may get to the point where it is cost-effective to invest in the restoration, and then you'll have a car that's worth even more and you'll get an, a, a very good ROI, which is return on investment. Now, for initial investment at 38500 I think that's okay. I think it's good. If I had the money, would I pay it? Yes. I would absolutely pay upwards of that number. I think as time goes on, these original numbers matching cars, especially ones with sought-after options, like v-code cars the 446 pack cars i think they're just only gonna get more sought after because guess what they were only original once you hear that saying all the time in classic and muscle cars and it's absolutely true you take a car that's original and then you have it restored it'll never be what it was you know you may spend a hundred thousand dollars and have it restored to the condition it was in when it rolled off the assembly line, but it will never be original. So, I mean, one of my dreams would be to have a museum of nothing but barn find cars and just keeping them preserved. I think that would be so cool. If someone ever does that, hire me. I'll help you find all the cars. (laughs) I realized that I said barn find museum. Poor choice of words. What I mean is unrestored, mostly original cars, not necessarily barn finds. This car, I think, is really special, especially with that color. God, that Winchester Gray is so cool. If you don't know what A4 Winchester Gray looks like, just look it up. It is a very cool color. One of my favorites, like I said. And this car, I think, would be one of the cars that I would deem worthy of leaving exactly how it is and just preserving it and just seeing where the market goes in the next five to ten years and i i would almost bet the house that you'll make some money on this car if you bought it for thirty eight thousand five hundred. i know a lot of people are out there saying i'm insane right now and i agree with why you're saying that but i think you're not looking at this car as a long-term investment and with these cars 
in certain situations, I think it's important to look at them as long-term investments. Is it a big chunk of cash right now? Yes. Will it pay off in the end? I'm betting yes, that it will pay off, but you have to be patient. If it was me, I would definitely buy this car. I would probably try to get it for high 20s if I could. I mean, obviously way cheaper than that. (laughs) Let's be honest. You know, would I feel comfortable if I had the money spending $38,500 on this particular car? Yes. I wish it was a pistol grip four speed, but beggars can't be choosy. I guess I'll settle with a column shift. Although not as sought after as the pistol grip, it may be just a little bit more special in the fact that lower numbers of this particular car, the way it is set up and built, it may just supplement its rarity, if that makes sense. So now we get into which car takes the crown for Project Car of the Week. I have to be honest here, and I'm leaning towards the Super B. My reasoning for that is that it's a 446 pack car. And being numbers matching, that puts it ahead of the curve, along with being a rare color. With the Coronet, you have a green on green, which was pretty common for Mopars. And with A4 being a very rare color, I think there's value in that. Also value in the documentation that the car has. So if you could get this car for 26000 then in my opinion, you've made money as soon as you handed over that cash. So this week's project car of the week is the 1971 Dodge Charger Super B V-Code 446 pack car. I'm going to put a poll on the Mopar Hunter page on Facebook, and I'm curious to see which car you guys would pick. So if you're listening to this and you follow the Mopar Hunter on Facebook, if you don't, you should. It's a cool page. Then watch out for the poll and vote. I'm curious to see which way you lean. Let's leave money out of the equation. If you did that, I bet you you'd pick the Super B. I almost guarantee, unless it's not your body style, because it is a 71 and a lot of people don't like the styling of the Charger post-1970. And I understand. I'm actually a fan of the 71-plus Roadrunners and the 71-plus Chargers. I think they're cool-looking cars, and I don't think they get enough love. But a lot of people just don't like the styling, and, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. And it's okay if you don't like them, more for the people like me that do. So, Super B for the win. It's time once again for listener stories. This is one of my favorite parts of the show, and you can participate. All you have to do is email me at chris at talkingmopars.com and submit your story to me, and it will be read on this show. I have a giant stack of these stories, and I'm going through them a couple or a few at a time, and hopefully we can catch up with them because there <laughs> there's a pretty big stack. So I'm doing the best that I can in the time that I have available. So if you send them in and you haven't heard it yet, just know that I will get to them. If you're interested in hearing your story on this show, like I said, just shoot me an email and we'll get it on this show. So let's get into this week's stories. 
First story comes from Chris C. Now, Chris, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, and I don't want to butcher it, so I'm just going to call you Chris C. I hope you're not offended. And this is Chris C.'s story about his 69 GTX. So I've had my GTX since 1978. Car has been restored once, and now it's getting restored yet again. And since I've had it for so long, I have endless memories. My two favorite are bringing my son home from the hospital when he was born in 1986. And second is a very special drag race I had against a Dodge minivan full of kids. On our way home one night from Woodward Dream Cruise, we stopped at a light at Dixie and Telegraph Road. I look to my left and all these kids are stuck to the glass checking out my GTX. Cars black, huge tires, liftoff hood, loud as hell. Anyway, light turns green and I blister the tires. Car takes off. I get a quarter mile past the van and hit the brakes. I stick my arm out the window and wave them on to hurry and get beside me again. They finally catch up and I hit the loud pedal again. Smoke is rolling and those kids are going nuts. I hope that night is the night they will remember forever. Chris, I'm sure those kids still remember your car on that day. What a fun story. I was interested in the special drag race. When I first read the story, I was like, ooh, drag race. And then I read Dodge Minivan Full of Kids, and I was like, well, if you're going to race a minivan, you might as well do it right. And I'm sure those kids will never forget that black GTX with the big tires, the liftoff hood that was loud as hell. Our next story comes from Frank D. Chris, here is my story. I am 55. I bought my first Mopar back in high school in 1980. It was a 68 Barracuda that I paid $500 for. It was a neighbor's car I wanted since grade school. I asked the owner constantly about it, and she promised me first dibs when she was ready to sell. I got it a few years later. Here's where it gets better. I had a son in 1989. He grew up loving cars. I took him to car shows at an early age, and he always loved the old cars with fins. He bought his first car in high school. It is a 1970 Dodge Coronet sedan. First owner, 99,000 miles, daily driver. This sparked my re-interest in the hobby after many years of Jeeps and minivans. I bought my next Mopar this year. It is a 1967 Barracuda. It is almost identical to the 68 I had in high school. My son and I found it on the web and went to look at it. It was love at first sight. We took it for a test drive and my son said, Dad, we have to buy this car today. I bought the car a few weeks later and driving the car is a blast. I look forward to many car shows in the future with the 67 Cuda and my son's 1970 Coronet. Thanks for listening. Here are some picks. Frank. Frank, very cool. I love hearing stories like this. I'm always going to say that any time that you involve kids in cars is always good. Literally the foundation for car enthusiasm. I think it's great that you got your first Mopar back in high school and your son repeating history got his first Mopar in high school. Very cool. I'm glad that you guys have found this common bond and you find that a lot with parents and kids that are car enthusiasts. They bond over cars and it's just, it's a beautiful thing. All right, folks, it's time for us to get ready to close up shop. But before we go, let's talk about a couple things couple last little closing thoughts. This is a widely debated topic and opinions vary. 
But let's talk about if Mopar prices are out of control and what's going on in the market. Is Russ the new gold or what? Let's take a look at this. When did rust become a precious metal? Prices are higher than ever for these project cars, and it's causing buyers to reconsider if purchasing a car to restore is worth their hard-earned money. Let's explore some common theories behind the rising tide when it comes to project car pricing. I think there's two main factors. I think that, and you hear this all the time on the internet groups and all that stuff on Facebook and yada, yada, yada. You hear that the TV shows and the collector car auctions are ruining the hobby. Okay, well, let's take a closer look. Let's let's dive a little deep into both of these. Let's start with TV shows. Car restoration or flipper TV shows are often blamed for prices of project cars going through the roof. The formula for these shows is simple. The buyer shows up to look at a potential flip and lowballs the seller. They go back and forth on the price until they ultimately meet somewhere in the middle. Sellers have seen these shows and buyers emulate the guys on TV trying to get the best deals. This results in sellers jacking up the prices because they expect to be lowballed. Okay, the crafty editing of TV also does not help. TV shows make rebuilding a car look quick and easy. They also distort the actual costs of restoration and resale value not considering costs of labor or discounts from, you know, the affiliated suppliers and vendors for the shops that are doing this work. The true cost of restoration is often left out of these shows. This gives sellers the notion that no matter how much work their car needs, it is easily restorable. We've seen this before. You know, oh, easy restoration. Oh, only needs a few things to get it back. You know, doesn't need much work to finish. You know, we see that all the time. No mention on these shows of the fact that quality restoration costs can exceed the value of the car when finished. This adversely affects the marketplace. And you also hear me say that you don't have to restore a car. You can get it running and driving safely and enjoy it. I'm cool with that. You know, as long as it, if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. That saying, I, as far as Mopar muscle cars go, I don't look at them like that. I look at them as, you know, pieces of American car culture, and I love them for that, not for what they're worth. That's where I stand on the subject, but I also understand that there are people out there that look at these cars as investments, and eventually they're trying to get a good ROI, a good return on investment. So I understand where that mindset comes from. You know, sometimes I see cars and I go, that would be, I'm not personally interested in keeping that car for a long time, but I see where it could be beneficial to buy a car like that or that car and then keep it for a little bit, flip it, and then get something that I really want. But I don't have that kind of money to be tossing around. So that's why I don't generally think that way. That's not how my mind works when it comes to Mopars. But yours may be different, and that's okay. We're just talking about opinions here. So the next theory of why the prices for these cars have skyrocketed is a big one. And it's the collector car auctions. We all know what their names are. I'm not going to mention them here for obvious reasons. And I don't have any problems with the collector car auctions personally. I actually find them very entertaining and I love to watch them when I get a chance. But the problem is that some of these sellers with these cars, they suffer from what I call auction syndrome. It's when a seller has a classic car buried under junk in their garage 
out in their barn or rotting away somewhere on their property with, you know, trees growing through the engines and all sorts of crazy stuff. They're flipping through these channels and they see cars like theirs on the auction block on TV and they see that hammer drop for huge numbers, some, you know, in the six-figure range. So they go, oh, wait, I have a car that looks just like that. And they get mesmerized by the shiny paint and disposable incomes of the auction's bidders. So they fixate on the possibilities of their car actually being worth a lot of money, too. And their minds fill with all sorts of delusions. And then that transfers right over to the ads that they create with unrealistic descriptions and prices. What is often forgotten is that a lot of these cars exchange hands within the same community of collectors and dealers and not so much the average person just looking for a reasonably priced project car. So what is conveniently omitted from the conversation is how much money is lost as the hammer falls. So these buyers, or excuse me, these sellers, they're watching these shows and they don't realize that a lot of these cars are just passed from collection or collector to collector and not just average Joes. So they see this sea of people in the audience and they go, oh, well, there's a lot of people buying cars just like mine. You know, that one went for $100,000. You know, how much could a restoration really cost? You know, I'm going to put my car up for 25000 And they have a complete rot box. So you can kind of get an idea of where some of their mind frames come from or some of their mindsets, you know, how they get these crazy ideas. And it's often talked about on the internet. And I agree with a lot of it. I think that a lot of people are completely you know, misled by what they see on TV. And it's mostly due to their own ignorance. It's not, you know, the auction company's fault that you saw a very rare car that just happens to be the same general shape as yours. And it went for a lot of money. So you think yours could go for at least a quarter of that. But if their car was $100,000, what's a quarter of $100,000? That's a $25,000 car. Okay. And in your mind, you're going, oh, well, 75000 should have that thing in tip-top shape, just like that one on TV, and they could sell it and make some money. Not necessarily the case. Another problem is supply and demand. I mean, let's face it, they aren't making these cars anymore. Combine the dwindling supply with the recent rise in popularity, and that's where supply and demand comes into play and really affects the market. These circumstances drive prices up because you get a lot of potential buyers with fewer cars for sale. And the only thing you can do to combat this issue is always be on the hunt and always be ready to buy before the other guy. Project cars are still out there, people, but they are demanding more money as time goes on. So it's important that if you are looking for a project car, you get out there and you just do the work and find yours sooner rather than later. As a buyer, you need to stay vigilant. You need to maintain a list of resources where you can find these cars and check them frequently. Because there still are deals out there. You just have to be ready when the opportunity presents itself to you. So I, if I'm looking for cars, and I've done this before because I have a couple of them. And when I'm looking for cars, I always have a list of good candidates. So if one sells, I have more to choose from. So I try to give myself options. So don't get discouraged if you see some of these prices online or wherever you wherever you get your Mopars. Um, 
If you see some of these crazy prices, don't get discouraged because there are good deals out there. You just have to find them and you have to be ready when they present themselves to you. A lot of people, you know, they're flaky guys. They reach out to these sellers with no real intentions to buy. That's a waste of your time and the seller's time. Don't do that. There should be a mutual respect there. So a couple episodes ago, I got into some helpful hints and tips. And let's just go over them again. And maybe I can clean them up and just formulate the ideas a little bit better. So it's been said that a rising tide lifts all boats. But whoever said that was clearly not speaking on the prices of project cars. Here are some useful tips for those of you that are starting to lose hope about ever finding a reasonably priced project car. Tip number one, be respectful. Sometimes you should approach a seller as a friend, not just a buyer. By simply finding some common ground and building some genuine rapport, you may end up paying a lot less than the guy who comes to smooth talk and haggle like the guys on TV. Just be respectful. And it goes both ways. If you're disrespected by a seller, then you don't need to be giving that person your money anyway. So be ready to walk, whatever the situation is. Tip number two, there's always a right way and a wrong way to make a lower offer. Don't be the buyer who shows up lowballing and end up insulting the seller. You, that's the last thing you want to do is insult the seller, insult their car, because they're not going to give a good deal to you. If you're working within a budget, say that. Avoid trying to diminish the value of a vehicle to match the money in your pocket. Tip number three, be diligent and persistent with your search, especially if you're looking for something rare or specific. Occasionally grazing through Craigslist or you know Facebook Marketplace isn't going to cut it. You have to look every day and contact sellers immediately and be ready to buy if you want these deals because they're still out there. You just have to be ready. I can't stress that enough because if you don't have a stack of cash in your pocket and you're looking for project cars, you're not ready. If you don't have a plan for, okay, I'm going to go pick up a project car, but I don't have a truck. Well, then you're not ready or you have a truck, but you find the car that you want, you have the money, but you don't have transportation yet. You don't have a trailer lined up or any of that. You got to get all these ducks in a row before you go messing around because would you want to lose that good deal because you didn't have a trailer ready and, you know, Joe down the street had his trailer ready and he went and grabbed that car before you because he was ready? No, always be ready. Be ready so you don't have to get ready. Tip number four, don't put all your eggs in one basket, people. Deals don't work out for many reasons, and getting your hopes up about one car can lead to major disappointment. Keep your options open, and you know if you find a bunch of cars that you want, like that's what I would suggest. I would suggest having a budget in mind, and then having a list of cars that fit that budget and fit your criteria, and then order them based on priority or best match from best to worst. For your situation and then start knocking down that list and until you get one of those cars. If that's how adamant you are about getting one of these cars, that's what you got to do. Tip number five, don't ever give up. There are still good project cars out there. I can't stress that enough. There's a lot of cars out there that need to be saved. I speak from experience. There's a good possibility that you'll find the perfect project car, even if it takes time. But don't give up. Be patient. There's still good project cars out there. You just have to be ready for it. I can't stress that enough. Be ready for them. Because when a good deal comes up, it's gone really quick. You see that a lot. 
even with some of these cars that people think are overpriced. They talk all this mess about, oh, it's overpriced, never going to get it. Then the car's gone. And then people are like, well, how much was it? Huh. Guess what? The guy who wanted that car didn't ask that question in the comments section. He went right to the contact. He contacted that guy and was no BS. It was, hey, I want the car. I've got money. I can get it. Tell me where I need to come. I have the money right now. Let's make this happen. You know, it's all about action here. No buyers like to mess with flakes or people that are just tire kickers. If I'm selling a car, I'm selling a car. So those are just some simple tips. I mean, these are simple. This is as simple as it gets. If you can't follow these simple tips that should basically be common knowledge, then I'm not sure you're going to be capable of finding a car, let alone making the deal happen. You know, just go the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. I've had to do that many times to myself and go, hey, 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 what are we doing here? Just keep it simple, stupid. What are we doing? And then, you know, it works out for me. So hopefully it'll work out for you too. Those are those are basically the simple tips. But I do think that the TV shows and the collector car auctions are affecting the market for these cars. But that doesn't mean that deals are not to be had out there. You just have to know where to look and be patient, and be ready. Are Mopar prices out of control? In some aspects, I would say, yes, absolutely, they are out of control. But just because they're out of control doesn't mean that we can't find the good deals out there, because they do exist. And the other question was, is Rust the new gold? I thought that was a funny way of putting it. And Rust is not the new gold. There is only one fact in buying and selling cars. And this is just my opinion. I think there's only one thing that matters, and that's these cars are only worth what somebody is willing to pay. You may see a car, let's take, for example, a 1969 Dodge Charger, and the guy's asking $25,000 for it, and it's a complete rot box. Most people would go, this guy is insane. But there is some guy out there that's equally insane that's going to go, you know what? I'm going to buy that car. I'm going to invest a hundred grand into it. So I've got 125 in it. It's going to take me a little bit of time, but I've got the right resources. And I'm going to turn around and I'm going to flip it for 150,000 because it's going to be a complete resto mod. You know, so there's there's a situation out there for everybody, folks. You just have to figure out what situation works for you. If you don't have the resources to restore a car, then go find a driver. Now, go find a driver-quality car and just have fun. If you have a little bit more money and you don't necessarily want to deal with the hassle of buying a project car and then going through the process of having it restored, then spend the money on a car that's already restored. Period. If you don't know anything about cars, don't buy a project car. Buy one that you can just get in, turn the key, and drive. That's it, folks. That's episode number five of Talking Mopars. My work here is done. The only thing I want to say in closing is go to TalkingMopars.com, find the contact page, reach out to me, share your Mopar story with me, Chris at TalkingMopars.com. Also, follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Facebook, The Mopar Hunter, or Talking Mopars. Either one of those works. On Instagram, you can find me at the.mopar.hunter or 
at Talking Mopars. Follow me on both channels, on all channels, and tell your friends. Tell your Mopar addicted friends about this show. Let's spread the word. Let's get this thing huge. Let's have some amazing guests on for 2020. Let's talk to some cool Mopar people. Let's keep this ball rolling. Let's keep this pedal to the metal. I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.